Y'all sounded really good. Y'all were louder than the band on that song. I love that. It's cool hearing voices. I like the loudness, too, because I'm a terrible singer, so uh, it'll be fun to be back in our building and loud, but uh, it is cool to hear from, from y'all. My name's Paul. Uh, I'm one of the Pauls. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's really good to be gathered with you this morning, and we're continuing our, our Advent uh, series, and this week we're going to be talking about joy um, Advent, as we've talked about, means an arrival or a coming. Um, and it's helpful for me, really, in this Advent season to, uh, to take time to slow down, to remind ourselves of how amazing our coming Savior is. And so we set aside these four days in uh, December to, to really just do that, to talk about the coming of our Savior, the coming that, he, you know, that we celebrate at Christmas, and then the second coming, the second Advent. And we set aside these four Sundays before Christmas just for that. Pastor Paul Dacus, uh, the first Sunday reminded us about hope and the hope that is found in Jesus and that hope is not just a feeling. And if you remember the definition, uh, I think he took it from Scott last year, but the definition of hope is that it's a confident expectation or assurance based on a sure foundation. And then last week, Pastor Blake reminded us about the peace that Jesus brought us and how we can be agents of peace uh, on this earth around us as we serve and as we pray for each other and specifically for our city. We talked about that last week. And so this week we're talking about joy. Uh, joy is one of those like, kind of like a Christmas cliche word a little bit. It's kind of one of those Christmassy words, right? How many of you, just a show of hands, have some sort of decoration in your house with the word joy on it? Yeah, that's pretty good. There's a lot of you. Yeah. What are some other words you think of at Christmas time? Christmas words. Oh, that's a good one. Noel? Peace. Yeah, that's a good one. Y'all are being very biblical. What are some of the ones you have in your house? Be, be honest. Ho, ho, ho. Debt? Yeah, I've got that one on a sign. Actually, it's a credit card statement. Uh, ho, 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 yeah. Merry, bright, cheer. It's a very, joy is a very biblical word, right? It's, uh, it's used in the Bible a lot. Uh, actually, 430 times it's mentioned in the Bible. So we're going to cover a lot of scripture today. We're going to cover all of those. Uh, so I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, there's an ancient hymn uh, found on ancient Hebrew and Aramaic scrolls that speaks of joy, and it goes like this. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. <laughs> Some of you are like, I think you've told that joke before, haven't you? <laughs> Look, maybe I have. Don't worry about it. I'm a volunteer, so you might get recycled jokes. So what is joy? Uh, one of the definitions says joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Another one says the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. I think that's a really good definition, which kind of led to my own definition. I think joy is really the result of hope realized. It's the result of when what you hope for happens. So you hope that your team wins. And what happens when they win? Joy, right? You hope a loved one gets cured, and you're praying for that. And what happens when they're cured for some illness? There's joy. You can go on and on, uh, but a hope realized results in joy. John Piper says this about Christian joy. He says, Christian, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. And so like uh, Pastor Paul was saying about hope, Joy, Christian joy isn't just a feeling, it's an objective item. It's a, an objective thing. It's not based on just a feeling. It's a feeling produced by the Holy Spirit 
as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. So it's not really based on a situation. It's not like happiness. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Joy is a gift. It's a gift as Christians that we receive from the Holy Spirit. It's a state of the soul, I like to say. It's not just a feeling. It's a state of the soul, and it transcends any situation. And it was the gift that man had with God in the beginning, in the garden, where, where man fellowshiped with God. It says he walked with the Lord in the cool of the day, and he was in his presence, and in his presence there was perfect joy. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life, and your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It, not just joy, not just a good feeling. It says the fullness of joy. That means a complete joy, not lacking in anything. We talk about this a lot if you've been at Refuge for quite some time. We talk regularly about how Scripture tells one big story. It's not, it's not just different stories that give us a good moral teaching, but it's all one big story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of ultimate joy found in one person, in Christ Jesus. And we know at the beginning, like I just said, there was fullness of joy when Adam and Eve were with God in the garden. Uh, but we know how the story goes. They chose to look for joy elsewhere, so they rebelled and they lost that presence with God. But what had happened is that that fullness of joy was etched in our hearts. And it's still etched in our hearts today. And it causes us to look for joy elsewhere. And that's what we see in Scripture. Um, in the Older Testament, from then on, we see Israel constantly wandering from God, searching for joy in other places. And there's these cycles of rebellion and disobedience, captivity and restoration. But all throughout the Old Testament, God keeps promising your joy will be restored and we see little shadows of that throughout Scripture in these good times, and uh, especially when David was king in Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that was kind of the pinnacle of Israel's existence was when David was king. They begged for, Israel begged for a king. All these other nations have kings. They were kind of jelly that they didn't have a king. And so here comes Saul. Well, Saul was kind of a tool, and so God quickly ushered him out, and David came in, and David was the earthly king of kings. And under David, Israel had just unparalleled prosperity. And so every king after David, they compared him to David. And I, I would think if you were one of these other kings, that would be pretty annoying. Like, yeah, you're pretty good, but you know who was better? David. And so always after him, they were comparing, they were comparing the other kings to David. Do you, all, do you do that sometimes? You have things that you compare other things to. You're like, I like this a lot, but it's not as good as so, like, my, one of my examples I, I wrote down is candy. So, like, if you get a candy bar, what's, like, the one you compare it to? God, y'all are disappointing me. Reese's, come on. And if someone says almond, the Almond Joy or Mounds, we're going to take you outside and try to save you. That's trash candy. But every time I get a candy bar, I'm like, that's pretty good, but it's not as good as Reese's. Or if you go shopping or like to a grocery store, like, yeah, Kroger's all right, but it's no Costco. Yeah, so there you go. Y'all are getting it now. Or like a good basketball player, you're watching a basketball game yesterday, and you compare him to Jordan, right? Everyone gets compared to Jordan, which is right, because he's better than LeBron. We can talk about it later. We'll fight about it. <laughs> and that's kind of how it was for David. David was one of these legends, and it, I almost think, I almost wonder if it was they started kind of becoming more of a legend than he really was, and it, the stories became bigger than David really was. And, you know, you, you probably do that with certain things. Scott's really bad about doing that with zombie movies. He always talks about how good they are, and we end up watching them. <laughs> Wasn't that you? 
That was, that was not you, right? Restaurants, like, you remember restaurants when you were a kid and you go to it as an adult, you're like, all right, that's not quite as good as I remembered. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if that was how it was with David. Uh, but the Bible's true, and it tells stories of David. And David really was, it says, a man after uh, God's own heart. But David was just a type and a shadow. He wasn't, he wasn't Israel's fulfillment. He was a shadow of what was to come. He was a shadow of a promised joy to come. And there's hundreds of Old Testament prophecies of Jesus um, that, that reference, that the Old Testament references, and they, they point to Jesus. Um, and a lot of them even reference, they even reference David in these prophecies of Jesus. Here's one in Jeremiah. It says, this is Jeremiah 23. It says, behold, the days are coming, to t- declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And God was saying to Israel, your joy will be restored. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see promises of an ultimate restoration of Israel's joy. Micah 5, I don't have this on the screen, but it says this in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth... For me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure from now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So we see these promises all throughout the Old Testament, that their joy was coming. But their joy wasn't going to be just an earthly joy. It wasn't about the restoration of Israel. Um, and there's a lot of debate about that right now going on, what's going on in Israel. Um, is this talking about the, the physical restoration of the nation of Israel? Um, I think the Old Testament was pointing to more than that. I think it was pointing to a spiritual restoration. It, Isaiah says this uh, in, in chapter 25 on this mountain he will destroy the shrouds that enfolds all peoples the sheet that covers all nations he will swallow up death forever the sovereign lord will wipe away the tears from all faces he will remove his people's disgrace from the earth the lord has spoken see this messiah would do more than just restore a nation he would conquer the ultimate enemy death and so all throughout the old testament these prophets spoke of the coming messiah hundreds even Thousands of years before, there's around 300 Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, of Jesus. And God was always speaking through and even rebuking uh, Israel through these prophets who heard directly from God all throughout the Old Testament. And then we get to, uh, to Malachi, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And when he was done, that was it. Silence. You can imagine Israel constantly hearing from these prophets and then all of a sudden, nothing else, no more. Almost like God had forgotten them, like he didn't have a word for them anymore. For 400 years almost, there was nothing, not a word from God. Scripture talks about this, like creation was holding its breath, like it was just waiting to exhale. It talks a lot about a pregnant woman wanting to give birth, just in so much pain and uncomfort, discomfort, and just waiting for that baby to come. Like the psalmist says in chapter 13, how long, O Lord? I love this reading um, from the Hope Advent reading that we've done in the past. 
Here's what it says. It says, at long last, a cry of deliverance was heard, uttered from the lips of the word made flesh. This newborn's cry pierced the midnight sky like a trumpet, heralding sin's demise and the defeat of death forever for all who would believe. The ancient of days stepped into time, wrapped himself in the frailty of human skin. He came full of pity, compassion, and power to rescue those lost in darkness and carry them into the kingdom of everlasting light. He came just as a prophet said he would, to do what we never could. Humanity's joy was no longer a shadow of a past joy that they had. Jesus' birth was the advent of joy. It was joy personified, no longer a shadow. This helpless baby, this helpless eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus, the redeemer that Israel had been waiting for, he had come to bring everlasting joy to his people. Y'all probably have this memorized, but uh, I love the way the Christmas story in Luke 2 talks about this. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. Did you hear it in there? It says, I bring you good news of great joy. In the city of David, a Christ is born. And here we went again. A lot of the Israelites viewed this coming Messiah as a political conqueror. That they were, he was going to free them from the Roman captivity that was oppressing them at the time and restore an earthly kingdom. He was the, he was the second coming of David. They remembered the good old days, or at least heard the stories of the good old days when, when Israel had their king. But the good old days that was really etched in their heart wasn't about the time when the earthly king ruled. It was a time when they fellowshiped with God in the garden. And so we know that Jesus was more than just an earthly conqueror. So why did Jesus come? Kind of a, a churchy question. Why do we need Jesus? Why is Jesus here? Is it, is it too simple to say that Jesus came to restore our joy, to restore man's joy, our ultimate joy, the fullness of joy that Psalms talks about? Because if the fullness of joy means being in the presence of God, then that has to be why Jesus came. Because of our rebellion, we can no longer be in the presence of God. Like I said, Scripture tells the story of Jesus restoring us back to the Father. So those of us right now in Christ Jesus, your joy is complete. Those of you who have repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus, your joy is complete. In John 15, 11, it says, Now these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Those are the words of Jesus. Your joy may be complete or full, some translations say. Because you have been reconciled back to God through Christ Jesus, Your joy is now complete. He took our sin, gave us his righteousness. We call it the great exchange from 2 Corinthians 5. He took our sin and shame and gave us his righteousness. That's why Jesus on the cross could say, it is finished. He didn't say, my part is done, now it's your turn to live the perfect life or do more good than bad. That's not what he said. He said, it is finished. He didn't come to make us savable. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us savable. He purchased our redemption for us on the cross. He accomplished redemption for us. He secured our eternal joy once and for all. 
which means your joy is objectively anchored in Jesus and his work on your behalf. I'm say that again. Your joy is objectively anchored. That means it's anchored to something that is immovable, that can't be shaken. But I know what you're asking. Why does it not feel like that? Why does it feel, why do I sometimes not feel joy? Why am I not always joyful? It's because we've not fully realized that joy. Why is that? Because of the world we live in. This sinful, broken world that we live in, the effects of sin are still present. Death is still around us. Sadness and sorrow still surround us. And because sin still exists, we won't experience all that God has to offer for us. Not yet. And we find ourselves again, just like Israel, awaiting for the arrival of our king that we would call the second advent. Romans 8.22 says this, Creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul wrote this to the, uh, to the Romans after Jesus came. So he understands that this, we groan inwardly. We know we've been rescued, but we still feel this groaning. And not just us. It says all of creation groans inwardly as we await the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. But we know it's coming. We know it's coming. Just right after that, uh, Scripture promises. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. This is one of those often misquoted verses, I think. Um, sometimes it's what I call a coffee cup verse. You know, we like to put it on there. It's one of those pithy statements that makes us sometimes feel good. Uh, I would say I don't recommend using this on someone who's experiencing loss or tragedy, not necessarily in the moment. You know, all things are going to work out for good for those, like, sometimes it, it doesn't really help. You know what I mean? I, I know your heart in it, and I've said it before, too, uh, but we do have to believe that, that in the midst of our sorrow and our struggle, that scripture tells us that all things are going to work out to our good. I think it's good to remind ourselves through verses like this that these sorrows are temporary and that these struggles are temporary. God promises that our tears are not going to be wasted. In fact, sorrow and joy go hand in hand if you look through scripture. It says Jesus was a man of sorrows. It says he was acquainted with grief. In fact, Scripture even says to count our pain and sorrows as joy in James 1 because it says it produces strength. It strengthens our faith, our faith and maybe your face too, but your faith especially. It strengthens our faith. It produces steadfastness. John 16, 20, uh, we've got another childbirth comparison. I feel like we're doing that a lot. It's always a safe, uh, safe illustration for a man to compare things to childbirth. John 16, verse 20, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You have sorrow now, but your sorrow will turn to joy. In Revelation, it explains exactly how this is going to work in Revelation 21. 
Uh, we, we quote this a lot here. With what Refuge has been through, this is one of those, um, these chapters and verses that I go to often. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he, he, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. All things sad and evil will come untrue, not just be forgotten. They'll be erased. The fullness of joy that was given in the garden that was written on our hearts, that we long for, that we chase after, will be ours again. It will all be made right, Scripture says, because of Jesus. So what? What do we do with all of this? Those are a lot of nice mushy feeling things you're giving us, but how do, we, how do we handle this? What do we do with this in the now? Well, first, I would say we do what, what Scripture commands us to do regards to joy. It says to rejoice. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You VBS kids are singing a song in your head right now. 45 times in the Old Testament and 74 times in the New Testament, we're commanded to rejoice, to delight in the Lord. Rejoice. Rejoice in the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that we have in Jesus. Find your greatest pleasure in him. John Piper calls this Christian hedonism. It's the conviction that God's ultimate goal in this world, his glory and our deepest desire to be happy, are one and the same. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So I ask you today, Refuge, what is your, so your source of joy? What, another way to ask that is, what can't you live without? When you think of the things in your life, what are those things you can't live without? I would say those are the things that you're putting your hope in and that you're looking for ultimate joy in. So I'll, I'll kind of address this in, in two sections. If, there, if there's anyone here who doesn't yet believe, if, you're, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you pretty much have two options here. You can continue to keep trying to find your joy, your ultimate joy, and things that won't ultimately fulfill you. Those shadows, like I talked about, those shadows of the joy to come. The pleasures of this world, as we know, are temporary. Or you can choose to place your joy and your hope and your joy in the one who promises to give you eternal joy, to give you the 
fullness of joy in Jesus. And I would even say scripture describes it as a joy beyond comprehension, a joy we can't even really understand, that we can't fully comprehend now. How? It's simple. Repent and believe. There's no magic formula. Repent just means to acknowledge your need for a Savior. Acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. Acknowledge that you've been trying to find joy in the wrong things and believe that Jesus is that Savior that you need, that his work of redemption on the cross accomplished that for you. For those of you here who I think the majority of us would call ourselves Christians, my word for you today is rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. The God of creation has reconciled you back to him in Christ Jesus through the work of Jesus. And he's not disappointed in you. He's not disappointed in you. You might be disappointed in yourself. You may have disappointed people around you. But because of Jesus, because of Jesus' righteousness that he gave to you, he took all of your junk. God is not disappointed in you. He loves you. He doesn't look at you with a frown on his face. Like, ah, you screwed it up again. Maybe next week you can do better. That's not how he looks at us. He sees the work of Jesus on our behalf. When he looks at you right now, his countenance is one of joy, of pleasure. Rejoice today because God is rejoicing over you. Zephaniah 3, 17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's, that's your situation with God right now if you're a Christian. Your reality in this moment. God is rejoicing over you. So rejoice. If that doesn't cause, cause you to rejoice, I don't have any other good news for you because that's about as good as it's going to get here. So I'll close with this. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Jesus in the word and in the world. So I'll ask you again, where are you, where are you looking for that joy? What is your source of joy? Do you find joy in the beauty of Jesus and his promises? The joys of this world are temporary, they're fleeting, but the joy that's ours in Christ Jesus will never fail you. He is the ultimate source of our joy the fullness of joy. And a day is coming again where we will experience that fullness of joy with him just as scripture promised. I'll close with this from John 16. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Let me pray for us.